Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's return to the Gospel of Luke this morning. I'm going to read to you Luke 24, verses 28 through 35. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it's getting towards evening, and the day is now nearly over. And so he went in to stay with them. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. And then their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. This morning I want to address you on the subject of disappointment. Only the youngest in this room have never experienced true disappointment. Disappointment is defined as sadness caused by the unfulfillment of hopes and expectations. And last Sunday, Brother Tony did a great job introducing us to a couple of disappointed disciples, which is the name of the title of the sermon today, Disappointed Disciples. One of the disciples' name was given, Cleopas. The other remains anonymous. The question is, what was the source of their disappointment? What was unfulfilled in their lives that caused them sadness? Well, we don't have to wonder. We're told in verse 21, it says, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. They were disappointed not because their favorite team didn't win the championship or they didn't get the promotion at work. They were disappointed with Jesus. And that's shocking on its face. How could anyone be disappointed with Jesus? He's the perfect one. He's God in the flesh. Could anyone be disappointed with deity? Well, I can tell you, having done a lot of pastoral counseling the last 25 years or so, this is not a rare occurrence at all. Many people find themselves, even as Christians, very disappointed with life and truthfully disappointed with God. But I've noticed that our disappointment as Christians seems to fall into two broad categories. Uh, one is when personal goals and dreams go unfulfilled. It might be in our career, it might be in the academic field, or even our financial condition. Maybe you work hard for years at that job and no one notices. Maybe you have financial setbacks that keep you from reaching your ultimate goals. And maybe right as you're about to reach that financial finish line, your health fails and you can't even enjoy the fruit of your labor. That leads a lot of people to disappointment. And the other end of the continuum where people seem to be disappointed is in their relationships. A lot of times it's their marriage or how their children turn out or even their friendships. You know, when we get married, we state our expectations up front, don't we? We sit before our family and our friend or stand right here in this spotlight and say, good times are bad, better or worse, sickness and health. And I've done a few weddings in my day. 
I've never met a couple that didn't mean those words, and I've never met a couple that understood those words. Because when you're young and healthy and your whole life's before you, you think certainly it's going to be good times rather than bad. It's going to be better rather than worse, and it's certainly going to be health rather than sickness. And then life happens. People get disappointed. Sometimes with their children. They expect that their children are all going to be intelligent and athletic and beautiful and healthy and thankful. It doesn't always happen. And so people get disappointed, even in their friendships. Maybe you've invested decades in a friendship. You think this person will support me no matter what. And then in the end, they become your harshest critic. And for those of us who believe in the sovereignty of God, and I know you do, a natural reaction to life's disappointments is to question God. After all, by definition, if he's sovereign, he can change things, right? So why doesn't he change things to make them more in line with how I think they should go? Job, I think, is an example of this in the Old Testament. The first portion of his life, things unfolded like a dream. Got married, had a beautiful family, his farm prospered, he had a good name in the community, and then one after the other, he lost it all. God allowed Satan to take these things one by one from Job, his children, his farm, his standing in the community, and ultimately took away his own health. The scripture says he never cursed or charged God foolishly as his wife wanted him to do, but he did question God of why he allowed this to happen. In fact, it seems he sort of demands an audience with God to ask him the why question. And God was gracious and met with Job, but he didn't answer Job's question. You can read in vain for a long time to find the answer of why God allowed this to happen. He chose not to tell Job why. And in the end, Job had to settle for trusting God's heart, which is always enough because his heart is pure and good. Well, we're talking about two men today who were walking the seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus. These two men apparently were believers. We could describe them as disciples of Jesus. They had just had the biggest appointment, disappointment of their lives. It had been a whirlwind of activity the week before in Jerusalem. It started with Jesus' triumphal entry through the eastern gate of Jerusalem. Day after day, Jesus would go to the temple to teach, and while he was there, he had to refute the challenges of the scribes and the Pharisees. From time to time, he would steal away from the crowds with his inner circle of disciples to give them important instructions like the Olivet Discourse, predicting destruction of Jerusalem. But ultimately, he came with his inner circle to the upper room to celebrate Passover. And while there, he instituted what we know as the Lord's Supper. But even as this supper was going on, a betrayer, Judas, slipped out into the night and took 30 pieces of silver Knowing that Jesus would retire shortly to the Garden of Gethsemane, he led a throng of a thousand men at least up the hill with torches and clubs. And when Jesus came out to meet them, they arrested him, bound him. The scripture says they took him to the high priest house. And that was just one of six illegal trials that happened that night into the early morning. And from his house over to his son-in-law's house and from there to the Sanhedrin and from the Sanhedrin to Pilate, and from Pilate to Herod, and then ultimately back to Pilate. And we all know where it was going. Jesus certainly did. That it would end at Golgotha, 
just outside the city, the hill of the skull, where Jesus was put to death through crucifixion. And as the women who loved Jesus watched from afar, a kindly man, Joseph of Arimathea, requested the body of the Lord Jesus and took him down from the cross and wrapped him in linen cloth and took him to his own personal tomb that he had had hewn out of a rock and laid his body there and sealed it with a stone. The women followed from afar to make sure where Jesus would be buried because they knew the sun was going down and Sabbath was coming and they could not do work on the Sabbath. So they waited until Sunday morning. We call it Easter. When the sun came up over the horizon, they were the first ones there. To their surprise, they found the stone rolled away and the tomb empty. They did not know what to make about this, so they went back and told the disciples. And Peter and John ran to see it with their own eyes, and they found it just as they described it, an empty tomb. And apparently this word began to spread to all the other disciples in the city, of which these two were disciples. And they began to wait and wonder. But apparently they became disillusioned. Again, verse 21, besides this, it is the third day since these things happened. <laughs> they were like us. They gave it a little time, but not much. This is Sunday afternoon. By Sunday afternoon, remember, Jesus had been crucified on Friday. And by Sunday afternoon, they seemed to have given up on Jesus. They had evaluated Jesus, his life and ministry, and apparently come to the conclusion that they had wasted their time in following Jesus. They said, because we hoped, we thought that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. And right there, we see the source of their disappointment. Their problem was not what they thought it was, though, as we're going to see. Well, let's back up to verse 15 and 16. And let's see, first of all, that Jesus interrupts a pity party. Jesus sometimes does that, doesn't he? He crashes our pity parties. Verse 15 says, while they were walking and discussing, talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Now, it would be a little disconcerting, I expect, to have a stranger approach you and start listening in on your private conversation as you're walking down a road. Although in certain parts of the world, even today, it's not that unusual. This was, by the way, pre-smartphone when people actually spoke to one another regularly in complete sentences. And what is interesting is that even though Luke clearly identifies the stranger as the risen Lord Jesus, neither of these disciples recognized him. Why not? Well, from God's perspective, he tells us in verse 16, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. He prevented them from knowing who he was. The point is Jesus is sovereign here. They're not pursuing him. In fact, they seem to be returning to their old lives before they had ever heard of Jesus. He approached them, not vice versa. But when in his purposes, he was ready to reveal himself to them, he did. Now, I know that runs cross grains of the image of Jesus that many of you were taught growing up. That image of, of Jesus who is full of angst and worry Wondering if any of us sinners are going to choose him. Sort of like a middle school girl waiting by the telephone hoping someone chooses to take her to the dance. That, friends, is not the Jesus of the Bible. He is sovereign. Now, from a human perspective, 
the reason they didn't recognize Jesus was he was not the Messiah they were expecting. They knew some things about Jesus, we're told in this passage. They knew his biography. They knew he was from Nazareth. They knew his deeds, maybe had witnessed some of his miracles and certainly had heard him teach with authority. They probably were watching from a distance. They knew about his mistreatment, about the sham trials and the beating and the crown of thorns and the crucifixion. They were even sympathetic to that, it seems. But it's obvious from reading this text that there were some things they did not know about Jesus. Primarily, they didn't understand the enormity of his mission and his purpose. You see, they thought that their problem was they had put Jesus on a pedestal and their view of Jesus was too large and he failed to meet up to it. They thought that's where the source of our disappointment is. We thought too highly of Jesus and he let us down. The truth is their problem was they didn't think enough of Jesus. And that's why they were disappointed. See, they had put Jesus in this box of expectations that he was going to redeem Israel. Well, Jesus is going to redeem Israel, isn't he? But he had a bigger plan that he would save people from every tribe and tongue and people group on planet earth. They didn't understand that. Their view of Jesus was too small, not too great. Look again in verse 21. We were hoping that he was going to redeem Israel. Now, Cleopas reveals everything in that sentence. The source of their sadness, the root of their grief, was disappointment with Jesus. They had put their hopes in a Messiah that would foment a political revolution, cast off the Roman oppressors, and restore Israel to political power and glory as it had been in the days of David and Solomon. But this, unfortunately, was not a belief or an expectation that was isolated to these two disciples. It seems to be the almost universal understanding of Messianic prophecy at the time of the Lord's ministry. A couple of examples. We've talked before about Salome, the mother of James and John. This was her expectation. That's why she went to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, when you come in your kingdom, that is when you establish your government here in Jerusalem, let one of my sons sit on the left and one on the right. Let them be your cabinet. Let them have a place of honor in your kingdom. But it's not just before Jesus was crucified, unbelievably almost in Acts 1.6, just as Jesus is about to send into heaven, they come to him, that is the disciples, and begin asking him saying, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? They still don't understand. And the travelers, these two disciples at this point, indict themselves. Jesus begins to act, as it were, as a a sort of prosecuting attorney as they're walking. What do prosecuting attorneys do? At least the ones I watch on television shows. They ask open-ended questions to get people to indict themselves, to hang themselves in their own noose, so to speak. So this is what Jesus is doing. What, What questions does he ask? Well, verse 17 says, he asks, what are these words you're speaking to one another? Let's remind ourselves that Jesus never asked questions out of ignorance, did he? He's about to teach them something. What are you guys talking about? As if he didn't know. And then verse 19, what sort of things happen in Jerusalem? Well, these are the things that happened to him and through him. Of course, he knew. Jesus was asking them questions so that they would speak and by speaking, reveal to themselves 
the source of their unbelief. And he gets down to this statement. He says, we're disappointed with Jesus, and by now it is the third day since these things happened. Now that should have jostled their memory. See, they had the same problem the women did. They failed to remember Jesus' clear teaching that all these things were going to happen. Matthew 16, Matthew 17, Mark 8, Jesus said very clearly, I'm going to Jerusalem where I'll be arrested, I'll be crucified, and I will rise on the third day. And from the mouth of Cleopas, he indicts himself. It's the third day, and rather than rejoicing because the tomb is empty, we're quitting and going home. They missed it. Why? Well, we know it's their unbelief was not because of lack of evidence. My goodness. In any court of law, this would have been a clear case. There were eyewitnesses. Now, in any court case where there are multiple eyewitnesses, it's almost a slam dunk. The women saw the tomb was empty. Peter and John saw the tomb was empty. Jesus appeared to several of them. And these were people, by the way, who were people of good reputation. They knew these women to be truthful and honest, and yet they would not believe. Well, if that's not enough to have upfront, truthful, honest people you've known for years tell you something as an eyewitness, there was the witness of the angels. What did the angels say to the women? He's not here, he's what? Alive. He didn't say we've moved the body, he's alive. Why are you seeking a living person in a cemetery? And then there's the forensic material evidence of an empty tomb. Do you ever think about that? That may be one of the greatest proofs that Jesus is who he claimed to be is no one has ever been able to produce his body because it's not here. He's alive. So let me reiterate my point. Their unbelief was not owing to lack of evidence. And I would say this. No one today goes to hell because of lack of evidence. Romans 1 teaches us that God has revealed himself in multiple ways. One is through nature. We call that natural revelation. We look outside and we see the birds flying about and the plants sprouting in spring. We know we didn't do that. We know no man did that. We see God's attributes, his power is on display through everything that has been made but not only that, God has written upon the heart of every human being from birth and before his law. We don't have to have the Ten Commandments. We saw a few weeks ago he's given every human being a conscience to tell us the difference between right and wrong. And so we have nature, we have the law written on our hearts, giving testimony to God. But let me ask you this, those of us living in the Western world, and particularly in the bulk of the Bible Belt, how many people do you know who don't own a Bible? or have free access to one. I don't think I know anybody here that doesn't have access to the Bible or, or doesn't even own one or probably several. So we have nature, we have the law written on our heart, and for most people, we have access to special revelation, the written word of God in which the gospel is taught. The point is this, Jesus was crucified despite a mountain of evidence that he was innocent and that he is the Messiah. 
Now you think about that. The Old Testament prophets all spoke of this Messiah and Jesus fulfilled in great detail, beginning with that little village, Bethlehem, where the Messiah would be born, leading to Isaiah 53, which predicted that he would be buried with a rich man in the tomb. We now know of Joseph of Arimathea and all the things in between that he fulfilled perfectly. I hear people say sometimes when they're struggling to know God's will, things like this. I wish God would just speak out loud and tell me what he wants me to do. Now that likely won't happen to you, but it happened to Jesus. You remember the day of his baptism. He went out to the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist. And when he was a voice from heaven, God the Father said out loud, behold my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And many people heard it their own ears. And not only that, there's the evidence of Jesus' power in every realm of existence. In the physical realm, he could raise the dead and he could heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, give sight to the blind. In the spiritual realm, he could command demons and they had to obey. And more importantly, he had the power in the spiritual realm to forgive sins. So it was not simply that Jesus didn't give enough evidence, that's never been the case. The truth and their problem and their disappointment was that Jesus was not the kind of Messiah that they expected or wanted. So they rejected him in the face of a mountain of evidence. And these two men, like so many of us, rather than being struck dead for this unbelief, receive patience, and kindness and mercy from the Lord Jesus. As he reveals the truth to them, look at verse 25. He said to them, O foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Jesus patiently revealed himself, how? Through the scriptures. The Bible says faith cometh by hearing and hearing through the word of God. And so he takes his time beginning with Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We call that the Pentateuch. And so he started there. Now I don't know exactly what verses he used, but I have a good guess. I'm almost willing to bet he started in Genesis chapter 3 where God came to pronounce curses upon the earth and upon the serpent and upon mankind because of their sin. And in the midst of those curses in verse 15, there's the first telling of the gospel. He says to the serpent, you will strike him on the heel and he will crush your head. This seed of woman, the Messiah, would destroy death and hell. Maybe from there he went to Deuteronomy 18 where Moses predicted a prophet would arise from among them. Listen to him, he said. And almost certainly, he spent a great deal of time in Isaiah 53. For the scripture says he had no attractiveness that we should come to him. That he was despised and rejected. That it pleased the Father to crush him. and That he was bruised and by his stripes we are healed. And that he would die. That he would depart the land of the living. But he would live again. And he would bring many sons to glory. 
over and over, prophecy after prophecy, Jesus walked them through the Old Testament and began slowly to reveal to them the truth. And by the way, friends, this is how Jesus still opens blind eyes today by his spirit is through the clear teaching of his word. I stand in amazement and awe and disappointment. As I look around the evangelical church writ large, and churches by the dozens are abandoning the clear systematic teaching of God's word for entertainment. The idea is give people what they want and they'll come. And they will. But what they need is the clear teaching of God's word. Now I will tell you here, I'm so glad to be a member of this church, to have my children grow up in a church that holds high the word of God, that is unashamed to teach it in full dosage, so thankful for their Sunday school teachers and our associate pastors here who te preach the truth and our youth leaders. And may that always be the case because as far as I know, outside of this Bible, there is no better reliable witness of who Jesus is. This is where we find it. But here's the real point. If Jesus when explaining who he is, didn't go outside of the Bible, how dare we? And the answer is we dare not. Clear, solid teaching, though, of the word is not enough to have the kind of church that God wants us to have here. We also have to have intimacy of fellowship, and that's our final point. We finally get to the text today, verses 28 through 35, and the one point I want to make is that understanding and I mean there of God's will and purposes, grows through fellowship. Look at verse 28. And they approach the village. So it's these two disciples and Jesus. They're walking. They approach the village of Emmaus where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther. And they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it's getting towards evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And he reclined at the table with them. He took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Now, I grew up in a Baptist pastor's home in the rural south. And I started pastoring rural country churches in the south when I was 22 years old. I say all that to say I've been around my share of potluck dinners. And we lifelong Baptists sometimes joke and diminish the significance of sharing food because we do it so often. And in recent years, I've become convicted that we shouldn't diminish that. Because the Bible seems to indicate that it is around the table where intimacy and mutual affection are built. It is amazing as I read the New Testament, particularly of the resurrection appearances of Jesus, how many of them had an element of food? We'll look next week in Luke 24, 41. Jesus appears to the 11, and he asks the same question I ask every evening when I come home from work and open the door. Have you anything to eat? <laughs> and then we go to John 21, 9. Jesus goes up to Galilee. They're out fishing. Someone's on the shore starting a fire, and they recognize it as Jesus. Peter can't wait for the boat to get to shore. He jumps out and swims. And when they finally all get around the fire, 
Jesus gives them this command, come, have some breakfast. One of the functions of a local church is the breaking of bread, isn't it? Surely the Lord's table. That's why this COVID year was so painful to many of us, among other things. We went a year here, believe it or not, without taking the Lord's Supper together. This church is 135 years old. I would wager almost anything that that's never happened before. And when we did start taking it again, wasn't it sweet? Isn't it sweet? Gathering around the Lord's table and communion. But I think probably the, the clearest indication of the importance of fellowship and intimacy is in Revelation chapter 3. Remember, Jesus gave those seven messages to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And he comes to the very last one, the church at Laodicea who thought they had it all together, rich, increased with goods, and needed nothing. But uh, the problem was uh, they were neither hot nor cold. Jesus wished they were hot or cold. And then he says this, Behold, I stand at the door and what? Knock. Whoever will open, I will come in and, the King James says, sup. That's the first syllable of a word we use every day, supper. I will come in and have a meal with him. We will sit down and have intimacy and fellowship. And you've probably heard a thousand sermons on that text evangelistically. Lost person, Jesus is knocking on your heart's door. That's not what it means. He's speaking to save people. He's who've grown cold and distant and aloof in their relationship with Jesus. He says, I want you to come back and have intimacy with me. I'm here. I haven't left. I'm knocking on the door. All you have to do is open up. And we'll share that intimacy around the table again. And here's the point. Christian, First Baptist family, as we fellowship with Jesus and with his body in the context of the local church, he begins to reveal himself and his will. His plan for our church and our individual lives becomes clearer and more focused as we become more intimate and close to him and to one another. And when that intimacy and fellowship happens, we won't be able to control our enthusiasm for him, for the gospel. The sharing of the gospel, what he's doing in our lives, will flow naturally out of us like a fountain. Look what happened to these two guys in verse 33. After he opened their eyes through fellowship, they got up, and that very hour returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and those who were with them saying, the Lord has really risen and appeared to Simon. And they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them at the breaking of the bread. That very hour, that's very important because they've just walked seven miles. I don't know if the last time you walked seven miles, that's, that's hard. And although they were used to it, Rather than saying, you know what, this has been a great day. Let's get some shut-eye, and in the morning, let's head back to Jerusalem. They couldn't wait. Their enthusiasm was too great. They said, let's go now. And they left right then, and I bet you they were running, at least part of that way. And they made it back. Next week, we'll see, verse 36, while they were telling these things, they began to tell. They found that inner circle of disciples, their leaders, and said, look, believe these women what they said is true. We saw him with our own eyes. And you see how their disappointment vanishes when they see the bigger picture, when they see what Jesus was really up to. 
Well, the Bible, if anything, is realistic. No one reading the Bible can say truthfully that Christianity is about coming to Jesus and having him solve all your worldly problems, healing all your sicknesses and making life a bowl of cherries. Now, there's a bunch of people out at Eagle Mountain Lake that would teach you that. It's not true. It's a lie. The Bible is very realistic. Take, take the Apostle Paul, for example. Disappointment after disappointment. He would invest his life in young men for years, and they'd stab him in the back in the end. His health failed him. He spent a good portion of his adult life in jail, for goodness sake. Shipwrecked twice, beaten with rods, stoned, left for dead. And do you know what Paul's summary line of his biography was when he came to the end of it? I reckon, he said, that these things are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to come. So if you're disappointed with your life today, if you're even angry at God, it's okay. Many people have been. But if you will hold tightly to Jesus till you die, there will be no longer any disappointment, I can promise you. So this is the point I want to make in Romans chapter 10. Let's close with this. Romans 10, 9, and 10 I often quote when I'm sharing the gospel. It's, it's the gospel in microcosm. He says in verse 9, if you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Verse 10 says, for with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. Now, unfortunately, we almost never finish that thought with verse 11, which is this, for the scripture says, note that, where do we find the clear revelation of who Jesus is in the Bible? Here he is again, quoting scripture, for the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be what? Disappointed. Your version may say put to shame. It means the same thing. You will not be eternally sad for unfulfilled hopes and expectations. Because if your hopes and expectation is that Jesus one day will bring you to glory, you can rest assured that's going to happen. Because he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So pastor, you just preached a 40-minute sermon about how we all are disappointed. Now you're telling us if you trust in Jesus, you will never be disappointed. So it must mean a different kind of disappointment, right? The Bible is very open and honest and realistic that yes, you're going to have plenty of disappointment in this life. But if you'll put your faith and trust in Jesus, if you'll look to heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the Father, if, if you will continually lay up treasures there, that on the day of your death or when he comes for his church, you will never be disappointed, ever. Because all the promises of God are true and trustworthy. What about you, friend? If you're here today and you're disappointed with life and maybe even disappointed with God, just confess that to him. He already knows it. Probably most of the people in your life who know you the best know it too. Maybe you need to confess that to some other people. Now, once you've done that, you recognize that God's highest intention for you is not to make you happy. It's to make you holy. 
See, we think if we got everything that we wanted or dreamed of, we'd be happy. But the truth is, in the end, if we got everything in this world that it offered and missed out on heaven, we'd be the most miserable person in the world. The scripture asks the rhetorical question, what would a man give in exchange for his soul? And on the other hand, you can live in obscurity and poverty and poor health all the days of your life. But if your hope is in Jesus, he will never be eternally disappointed. What about you? What are you putting your hope in? This life or heaven? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus who's so kind and patient with his disciples. Lord, we show our unbelief and our disappointment and our lack of faith all the time in what we value and what we say and in what we do. Thank you, Lord, that you are patient and you, over time, reveal yourself through the teaching of your word and through fellowship with other believers. So, Father, I want to pray for some in this room today who maybe have grown cold in their walk with you. And some of the evidence of that is they no longer read their Bible. They no longer come to Sunday school. They remain distant and aloof. And I'm reminded of what you said of the church at Laodicea, that you stand at the door and knock. You want them to invite you in because you long for intimacy and fellowship with them, even as the church family longs for them to return. So I pray that you would convict some here today to open that door confess their disappointment and recognize that you have a greater plan that they believe Lord help them to believe what Paul says in Romans that you're working all things together for good for those that love him and then Father if there's anyone here today who knows you not I pray that you'd open their eyes just as you did to these two men and grant them faith and repentance and Father as we grow as a family in intimacy and closeness over time. Lord, I pray that what would emerge from that is not some new evangelistic program or strategy, but the very outflow of our being and our hearts would be to tell others about Jesus. Lord, would you grant that to us, a revival, an awakening among us, so that you'd be glorified. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.